0: Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took
1: it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved
2: it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did.
1: And in the end... What will I become?
2: Senua Saga. Hellblade 2.
1: Play it now with Game Pass.
0: Uh, Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown. Across the table from me is my good friend Matthew Stockton. Say hello, Matthew. Hello, I'm Matthew, co-host and...
1: Podcast micro celebrity. <laughs> micro celebrity. We're, uh, I think. I'm pleased to join you on the show, Mike.
0: Yeah. People say about uh, there are A level and B level. I think we're around like W. W. <laughs> we're W. Level. Or X. We're X Men. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, so there'll be no show next week as Matthew <gasps> and I will be in Las Vegas at Crime Con. I'm so they excited. Oh, lost Crime Con. Yeah. I'm thinking because we're staying an extra day, I have an idea for an outing for us okay. which is uh the nuclear testing museum that's one can and you, then can you drive us we can take the bus or a taxi or an uber
1: oh i thought i would get around to convertible
0: no oh. i looked into it it's too expensive okay yeah we are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toot, grab yourself a double double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Scarf away. Yes. March 27, 2010. Holly Bartlett, 31, was found unconscious and badly injured under the A. Murray McKay Bridge in Halifax, Nova Scotia, just 350 meters away from her home. She died the next day in a Halifax hospital. Holly, a grad student at Dalhousie University, was fiercely independent despite her disability. She'd been completely blind since she was 13 years old. Holly's autopsy indicated she'd imbibed alcohol and that she had sustained, quote, blunt force injury to the head attributable to a fall, and that the manner of death was accidental. Police did a brief investigation determining that after cabbing home from a night out with friends, Holly became disoriented and lost due to the combination of her alcohol consumption and blindness. Somehow, Holly had wandered down two steeply graded streets away from her home and toward the harbor and had made her way through a hole in a chain-link fence down a steep embankment and apparently had fallen seven meters off a concrete abutment under the bridge across Halifax Harbor. They called Holly's death accidental, but Holly's family and friends in the Justice for Holly group were not satisfied. They pressed for further investigation into her death. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 217, The Mysterious Death of Holly Bartlett. Holly Bartlett was born on December 26th, Boxing Day, in 1978. Her dad, Wayne, was a carpenter and construction laborer, and her mom, Marion, was a cashier manager. Holly's mom, Marion, spoke with filmmakers for an accessible Media Inc. documentary series about her daughter called What Happened to Holly Bartlett. Recalling the day Holly was born, Marion said, one of the nurses came up to me and said, so you know your daughter is blind. I was floored, end quote. Holly was born with microphthalmia. According to the website medlineplus.gov, microphthalmia is an eye abnormality that arises before birth. In this condition, one or both eyeballs are abnormally small. In some affected individuals, the eyeball may appear to be completely missing. Holly's mom went on to say that Holly was her middle child. Holly had an older sister, Kim, who was four when Holly was born. Holly, Marion said, had a strong personality in that she persevered despite her visual impairment that was initially corrected with thick glasses. Holly was an active girl, doing her best to be just a regular kid. Marion said, quote, she had friends, she had a social calendar, she always wanted to, you know, be known not because of her disability, end quote. I think probably everybody wants that. Yeah, you don't want to be known for, no. you know, yeah. You it's ma- like, I want imagine? to be known as a human being.
1: Yeah. Imagine walking in anywhere and that's the first thing they see is sort of part of your identity versus just who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. That would annoy the hell out of you.
0: Yeah, it would. Yeah. I guess you have to get used to it if you're a person with an obvious disability that, you know requires you to have specialized equipment like a wheelchair or a cane. I hope it's better than it used to be.
1: Yeah. I'd Im-
0: imagine it maybe a bit better mm-hmm. for people. The worst thing, I think, would be the condescension from people. Not understanding your level of...
1: Oh, you're so brave.
0: Yeah. Blech. Holly attended brownies with her buddies and was proud of the badges she'd worked so hard to earn. She liked to watch TV and play video games, but had to sit a little closer to see what was on the screen. As Holly grew up, her vision deteriorated. Between 12 and 13 years old, she was still able to perceive color and light. Even after she lost her sight completely at the age of 13, she remained as active as she could. In the ninth grade, Holly went to Sir Frederick Fraser, a school for the blind. It was there that she learned how to navigate the world confidently using her red-striped white cane, She also learned to read Braille and other adaptive tools, including getting a guide dog, Willow, a golden lab, which she had until the dog's retirement due to diabetes a few years before Holly died. She couldn't bring herself to get another guide dog after Willow.
1: I can imagine people who have guide dogs have like strong bonds. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Because you
0: know how strong my bond is with Steve.
1: Now imagine if he was also my guide dog, which is hilarious because he would just walk me into water or something. Right. He would just take you to the ferry or But to have like a pupper that you love and on top of that, they're helping you Mm -hmm. with your daily life. Yeah. The
0: bond must be really strong. It has to be. Uh, Yeah. I mean, they are, they're like a part of you really. you rely on them. A year before Holly's death, she spoke with filmmaker Kim Hart McNeil about her feelings and memories around the loss of her sight. For the documentary short, Sights Unseen, about adapting to life as a blind person. In the documentary, Holly says, when I lost my vision around the age of 13, that was rather traumatic experience. But everything at 13 is traumatic, she said laughing. Everybody wants to be just like everybody else, and clearly that was not going to be my option, so I was rather angry at the time. But I was really lucky I had a couple of good opportunities to meet other people who were blind and visually impaired. It gave me some inspiration to know that there were quote-unquote normal blind people around, so I didn't have to worry about that too much. Those friendships have been really helpful throughout my life, even though I may not have kept in touch with all of those people." End quote.
1: You know, I understand. Yeah. I understand wanting to meet people, Mm -hmm. other people who are like you. Yeah. um, Because it helps you understand you're not alone. Sure. Right? And, you know, at the same time, you're not going to keep all those people in your life all the time, but there's stages of finding people that might share something with
0: you. Yeah. 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 It's like uh, when I went to summer camp, some of the relationships you have at summer camp are like the intense friendships that you have there last for the length of summer camp and then you never see those people again. Yeah. Yeah. Holly's younger sister Amanda spoke to documentary filmmakers for the What Happened to Holly Bartlett documentary series. Amanda said that Holly projected an air of confidence even when she wasn't really feeling it. Amanda smiled as she said her sister was stubborn but also kind and loving. Holly went to Prince Andrew High School in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and there made some lifelong friends, reconnecting with Andrew Seely, whom she'd met in grade 5, and he'd become her friend then. Andrew was her roommate at the time of her death. Andrew, who's also disabled and uses a wheelchair, says that the pair had lots in common, as well as their shared disabilities. The two made up nicknames for themselves, making light of their own disabilities, calling themselves Gimpy and Blinky.
1: Mm, I appreciate that sort of thing. Me
0: too. Yeah. To
1: be able to make fun of yourself is the best humor.
0: And not only that, it kind of takes the power away from the bullies. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, well, if if we're saying it, then when the bullies say it, it has no wind.
1: Well, I think that's, you know, the word queer used to be very negative. Yeah. The word queer used to be sort of a put down from other yeah, people. Yeah, for sure. And now it's been uh, grasped by the community. Mm-hmm. I call myself fag all the time because... It, um, I'm allowed to, and it takes the wind out
0: of anyone else who wants to say (laughs) it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's your words, your, those are your words to own. That's hilarious, though, Gimpy and (laughs) Blinky. Yeah. Just an interesting aside, the administration of Holly's former high school has recently announced a pending name change for the school thanks to the Duke of York, Prince Andrew's alleged involvement in the events surrounding convicted sex offenders, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell.
1: Yeah, I can understand, you know, you wouldn't want a high school named after this guy, but I wonder how many institutions change their name, even if they were named for a different Prince Andrew, right? Yeah. Because there's like Prince Andrew of Greece and Denmark. He was from the house of Schleswig, Holstein, sonderburg Gluckstein. He was Prince Philip's father. Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, and there must be institutions named after him. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if they're like, oh shit, should we put the first or something beside this?
0: I've noticed a lot of institutions, even places are changing their names. I mean, thanks to colonialism, slavery, all those different things, the involvement of those people in those things. And even the name British Columbia mm-hmm. has come up recently as something that perhaps needs changing.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, I get it. I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, like you live in a place where you're sort of slapped with this is what happened to me every single time and mm-hmm. i'm not trying to be overly woke here it's not like we're
1: you're not you're not saying i agree with it and we should do it you're just saying this is happening
0: yeah this is okay. happening yeah but i don't disagree with it either mm-hmm. <laughs> where can you go yeah right all teens and most adults find social situations difficult but for holly As visual cues were obviously not something she could follow, she decided to focus on more academic pursuits. And she got great marks in school. This led her to university right after high school, supported by a scholarship she'd been awarded from the Wayne and Walter Gretzky Scholarship Foundation. According to the National Educational Association of Disabled Students website, needs.ca, quote, The Foundation honors the Gretzky's commitment to visually impaired young Canadians. Established in 1996, the Foundation continues the Gretzky family tradition of assistance to eligible blind and visually impaired students studying or planning to study at the post-secondary level. To be eligible, applicants must be blind or severely visually impaired. Planning to go or pursuing full-time studies and be Canadian citizen or landed immigrant for at least one year prior to submitting an application for consideration. Applicants are expected to have achieved high academic standing and have superior intellectual ability. Those skills can be demonstrated through an essay and responses on the application form. The award is worth $5,000 and the number of awards may vary. End quote. Holly's undergraduate studies were at St. Francis Xavier University in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. Her major was psychology. It was there, thanks to the help of guide dog Willow, that Holly truly hit her independent stride. Her sister Amanda told Maclean's Magazine that they didn't see Holly at home very often, only on the typical holidays like Christmas, Thanksgiving, etc. As Holly grew into a young woman, she wanted to be more on her own. From Maclean's. quote, Holly did allow for some orientation to the campus with the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, which helped with having her textbooks translated into Braille. In her second year, Holly moved off campus with friends and later traveled to Guatemala and Mexico as part of volunteer research teams. She graduated on the Dean's List in 2002, end quote. I think it would have been fascinating to study psychology.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm in marketing, so I dip into it, right? Because I need to know why... People act in certain ways, yeah, and how they respond to messaging, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll take a course someday. But that—that that, I've always
0: been fascinated with that. My cousin uh, has a PhD in psychology. Okay. Yeah, he teaches at Waterloo. Did he ever shrink you? He—he he has not shrunken me. Okay. He's—he's he's a pretty fascinating guy. Hi, Peter. If Hi, Peter. You're listening. <laughs> As Holly's independence grew, so did her confidence. She became involved in a lot of activities outside of her education. Although she availed herself of programs funded through CNIB, Holly loved being able to go places and do things on her own without assistance of another person. She didn't like having to depend on anyone else to get around, and the more she was able to do on her own, the more empowered she felt. Holly's older sister Kim also spoke to McLean's magazine about Holly. Quote, Holly was a tiny little thing. Only growing to four foot 11 and weighing under 100 pounds, and had a protector in Kim who'd offer a piece of her mind to anyone who dared tease her little sister. But, quote, that was her biggest beef with me, says Kim. She said it made it worse for her that she didn't want to be looked at as different, end quote.
1: I'd imagine as a person, you don't want a savior. No, you want to be able to handle stuff
0: on your own. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It, it's like, Sometimes a hand, a hand reaching out to help you up mm. when you're down is kind of an insult to your ego maybe a yeah. little bit and, and your sense of independence. Yeah. Yeah. Holly's next move was to Ottawa's Carlton University where she was going to pursue a master's degree and was working for the federal government. She only spent a year away from home before heading back to Nova Scotia as her live-in boyfriend was moving back, so she tagged along. Holly then went to NSCC, Nova Scotia Community College, to get a certificate in human resources. The relationship ended in 2005. Holly soon began taking contracts with the province of Nova Scotia as a researcher and began attending Dalhousie University part-time to obtain a master's degree in public administration. Working as a temp meant quickly figuring out how to get to new office buildings and then once there to navigate the office space itself a daunting challenge for even a sighted person. In the documentary, Sights Unseen, Holly gave some clues about what that was like. She said, quote, I was working one summer at an organization and so had the orientation and mobility instructor from the CNIB come in and show me around the office. Show me where the elevator was in relation to my cubicle, the washroom, and all of that stuff. So we were just checking out the washroom, where that was, and this lady walks by and said, she's like, oh, there's no flies on you, you can get to the washroom. I'm kind of like, wow, Um, you know, I can do a whole lot more than just get to the washroom, but if that's all I need to do to impress you, then it just made my day, end quote.
1: What does no flies on you mean?
0: So you've heard the, the saying, "Rolling a rolling stone gathers no moss. Yes. It's the same thing, like if you stand still, flies are going to land on you kind of thing. Is this an East Coast thing? I don't think, well, maybe it is. I don't know because because I heard it a lot back there. No flies on you. uh, No, I've never heard it. I think it might be regional. It could be, but Hmm. uh, I hear it here sometimes too, so. When you hang out with a bunch of people from your hometown. Maybe that's it. (laughs) (laughs) To help her with work and study, Holly used a software program called JAWS, which is short for Job Access with Speech. JAWS, whose logo is, of course, a shark, Claims it is the world's most popular screen reader developed for computer users whose vision loss prevents them from seeing screen content or navigating with a mouse. JAWS provides speech and braille output for the most popular computer applications on your PC. You'll be able to navigate the internet, write a document, read an email, and create presentations from your office, remote desktop, or from home.
1: <laughs> JAWS. Do-do, 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 do-do. You've got mail.
0: Exactly. I wonder if there's like a little lead up to every time I read something out there. I don't know, but I was watching the documentary with her in it and they were demonstrating that software. She was actually demonstrating that in Sights Unseen. Mm -hmm. And it was the reading speed of this voice Mm -hmm. was like super fast. And I'm I'm like, holy crap, your brain and ears work way better than mine do because Mm -hmm. I could keep up i I, you you know it's like listening to a podcast you can choose to listen to them at higher speed Mm -hmm. and typically like i'll listen to one at 1.5 sometimes even two uh if i need to plow through something but she like i swear that was like five times the the usual speed
1: sometimes when i have audiobooks if i don't like the reader's voice Mm -hmm. i slow it down oh just so it's a different tone. So mine you read and, at like point and, 0.1. And then it's not in mine. No, there's this one book I haven't, I just can't stand the guy's voice, so I slow it down and it
0: sounds great. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Staying true to her adventurous nature, Holly remained active outside of school and work, and she was busy. She volunteered to serve on the board of a non she supported. Holly loved assisted horseback riding, where over the years she'd won several ribbons and trophies. She joined a local chapter of Toastmasters, a nonprofit educational organization that teaches public speaking and leadership skills through a worldwide network of clubs, and it was there that she met Kirk Furlott, who took an enthusiastic and fearless Holly Bartlett along with him for her very first tandem skydive. She loved it. She also developed an interest in rock climbing. No, thank you to the skydiving. No, thank you to the skydiving. I'm not going to chuck myself out of an airplane. I see, though, why she would want to do that. I really do. Like, um, So you want to have experiences that uh, seeing people have, but at the same time, you want to have more extreme experiences so you can bolster your confidence in a way. Because I I think that's what that would do is like, hey, you know what? Uh, I
1: did that. I'd probably close my eyes as well. Just so I couldn't see the ground hurtling towards
0: me. Yeah.
1: Horrible. I just honestly, it makes me feel sick jumping at Like the thought of jumping on
0: airplanes freaks well, me out. I don't understand it. Okay. You have a perfectly good airplane that can get you from place to place. <laughs> Why are you leaping from it? <laughs> I'll just sit here and have my coffee. Thanks. Yeah, Exactly. Oh, look, I'm weightless. Ah. Yeah, good for her, but... Ugh. Yeah, no. I'm too chicken. Me too. Another Toastmasters friend introduced Holly to swing dancing, where she learned the steps to the popular dance. Holly recalled being invited to learn swing dancing and spoke of the experience in Sights Unseen, along with some footage of Holly dancing. She said in the documentary, quote, I decided, well, what the heck? I'm going to give it a try, and I really enjoyed it. You know, this person took the time to actually show me how to do some of the moves in advance, which really helped. Because a lot of the way that they teach dance now is very visual. So when I started taking lessons in January, there were some awkward moments because people weren't sure how to help me. And I wasn't sure how I needed to be helped because it was all so new to me. I guess the other thing is, I wasn't exactly walking around with my cane, waving it around and dancing with it, so some people didn't even know that I couldn't see until all of a sudden I'm right in front of them, end quote. Holly was moving on up, literally. She and her friend Andrew purchased a condo at Convoy Towers at 5572 Northridge Road, all the way up on the 13th floor. From the balcony, you can see the McKay Bridge, and hear the traffic rushing by as commuters make their way back and forth across the span between Halifax and Dartmouth. Andrew Seely, Holly's friend and former roommate, told the AMI documentary about Holly that she'd made jokes about the move. Andrew said, quote, Holly's sense of humor was always, the view is what sold her on the place, obviously, yeah, end quote. Holly Bartlett was living an active and full life, as she'd aimed to do. There was some darkness in Holly's life in the year leading up to her own death. Holly's uncle, her father Wayne's brother, had died in his sleep of cardiac arrest at only 60 years old. Then in the summer, Wayne's mother, who had been diagnosed with cancer, also passed away. And the hits kept on coming for the Bartlets. Wayne, whom Holly dearly loved, was also diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and was in the final stages of the disease. Holly was spending lots of her spare time at her dad's side at the family home in Dartmouth. She was desperately worried about her dad and wanted to maximize her time with him. Holly last saw Wayne on Thursday night, March 25, 2010. She was going out with friends on Friday night, had an appointment with her study group on Saturday morning, but promised she'd be back on Saturday afternoon for another visit with her pop. The timeline of Holly's movements on the night of March 26, 2010 are fairly well accounted for, in journalist Tim Busquets' article on the news site thecoast.ca and from other sources. Earlier in the day after work, Holly had gone out to buy a Wii controller as a birthday gift for her nephew who was turning six. She then went to a class at Dalhousie, after which she hopped on the bus back to her condo on Northridge. Tim Busquets' article described in detail Holly's clothing and appearance for the evening. Quote, She dressed in bold colors, blue jeans, Knee-high black boots, a sequined royal blue blouse. She applied lip gloss. If she ran a brush through her brown hair, no one would know. It was hopelessly moppish, unruly hair, matching her energetic lifestyle. So she kept it short, just over the ears. Heading for the door, she donned a red wool coat with stand-up collar and black leather gloves. She grabbed her purse, a small black pouch, which she wore like a backpack. And, quote. At 6 p.m., Holly went out for dinner with a friend, Moira. She was also attending Dal in the public administration department. They went to Halifax's Fireside Restaurant at 1542 Birmingham Street. They ate, and Holly had two drinks, chocolate martinis, with her meal. After paying for their dinner, the women walked a few blocks to a nearby liquor store where Holly, her ever-present white cane in her hand, used her credit card to buy a bottle of wine for a pre-party they were attending at another friend's home. Even though Holly had wanted to pay for the bottle on her own, Moira insisted on throwing in a little something and gave her a $5 bill. They drank at the friend's house for a short time before heading out to celebrate the end of their school year and pending graduation. The ultimate destination that night was Dal's University Club at 6259 Alumni Crescent, According to Holly's classmate, Gabrielle Joseph, as quoted in Tim Busquets' article, there were around three dozen people at the public admin program's year-end party. The bar was open and there were fun joke prizes given out and it looked like everyone was having a great time while they listened to speakers. Gabrielle did not recall Holly seeming intoxicated, although she'd seen her have a few drinks. She said Holly's speech was not slurred. After the final speaker of the evening, Moira called a cab for Holly and walked her downstairs. Holly required assistance as she was not so familiar with the university club's layout, but not because she seemed in any way drunk. Holly and Moira waited for Holly's taxi. Holly got into the cab and it drove off. Moira later said that that she and Holly's other friends had Holly's safety in mind, and if they'd felt she were drunk or in any way unsafe, they'd have never let her go home alone in a cab. Reports vary that for the whole evening from between 6 p.m. at dinner and when she left the party at 11.50 p.m., Holly had consumed between five and six drinks. The next morning, around 6 a.m., workers who'd been contracted to do some work in a fenced area under the McKay Bridge discovered Holly unconscious and badly injured, just under a 10-meter-high concrete abutment that was part of the bridge structure which anchored two of the massive cables used in the suspension bridge. At first, the men thought Holly was dead, but noticed she was still breathing, although barely. Seeing she was cold, one of the workers put his warm jacket on Holly and they ran off to call 911. An ambulance arrived and Holly was rushed to the hospital where healthcare professionals worked hard to save her life, rushing her into surgery at 8 a.m. Police had attended also, arriving at 6.47 a.m., and immediately began looking into what had happened. Holly's injuries were extensive. Her face was unrecognizable due to swelling and discoloration. There were no exterior abnormalities to the skull except one little spot on the right temple. Bruising and contusions were on her lips inside and outside. She had several broken ribs. Her palms were almost pristine and, There were considerable bruises and abrasions on both of her knees. Her lower right leg was broken in one place and her lower left leg was broken in two places. There was a subdural hemorrhage at the base of her skull more toward the right side of her head. The backs of Holly's hands were full of cuts and scrapes and she had two or three substantial bruises on her buttocks. Holly was also badly hypothermic. Her body temperature was a dangerous 23 degrees when they found her. The weather... Had been minus six degrees celsius with a wind chill of minus 10. at 10:30 a.m holly's blood alcohol level was taken and found to be 0.09 or 90 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters of blood which is just slightly over the legal limit of 0.08 in nova scotia considering the time that holly was found as well as her body composition she was tiny her blood alcohol level might have been 190 which is twice the legal limit after she had stopped drinking. As she had been drinking, her hypothermia might have been more serious and had come on more quickly on a night that cold, according to an expert employed by the AMI documentary. Out of surgery and on life support, Holly's condition did not improve significantly and by Sunday morning, two of her doctors had some distressing news for the family. According to Tim Busquets' article on thecoast.ca, The doctors both concurred that, quote, further support in this lady was futile and only served to prolong her death, end quote. The machines supporting Holly's life were removed, and she slipped away at 10.45 a.m. on March 28, 2010. It was determined that the main cause of her death had been the subdural hematoma, along with the hypothermia and other serious injuries. Even though the investigation into Holly's death began almost immediately after she'd been found clinging to life there under the bridge on that cold winter morning, many, especially Holly's family and friends, feel that what was done has not answered the questions surrounding the case sufficiently. We'll take a break right here, and when we come back, we'll take a closer look at the investigation into Holly Bartlett's death and its aftermath.
1: We took it all. Culpable is an investigative true crime series exploring unsolved cases where culpability has yet to be established. Seasons 1 and 2 took a long-form approach into the cases of Christian Andriacchio and Britney Stikes. The spin-off series, Case Reviews, explores new cases every
0: episode. From Tinderfoot TV, the creators of Up and Vanished, another installment of Case Reviews is available now. Alright, and we're back. Uh what are your thoughts so far, Matthew? So we've mm-hmm. she's you know, they've yeah.
1: This one's difficult. Yeah. I don't know what's I
0: don't know what's going on. Yeah. Well, we'll you know, we'll get into more about what's going on. Uh but really still nobody really knows what happened for sure. But there are more theories as we go.
1: Yeah, and it's hard. Like I always find the ones where you have a bright young person Mm -hmm. in uni. Yeah, right. Starting to like just really live their lives after they've started the hard work.
0: Mm -hmm. Cut short. These ones are always the difficult ones. Yeah, they're tough for me too. Also, why were her phone, wallet, chaps, wallet, and chapstick discarded where they were? Better fallen out of a pocket or a bag. They could have, mm. uh, but there's a later theory that they might have been thrown or placed there. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, of course, why would Holly, who depended on her cane to get around, leave it at all?
1: That's, that seems really super strange to me. Yeah. Like, if I was blind and didn't know where I was going, yeah. the one thing,
0: I would, like, have a iron gun clad grip on right would be my cane right yeah so it yeah it doesn't make sense to me that she's like like leaning up against the fence and just like okay i don't need i'm
1: lost and i don't need this she wouldn't do that yeah so hmm
0: (sighs) yeah Mike, i don't like this one no this is not good holly's family had provided police with a list of holly's friends and they were already aware of where she'd been that night they were confident that Halifax police would do everything they could to determine what had happened to Holly. They'd never had her negative experience with police, so they had no reason to believe they would do otherwise. But even before Holly's death, things felt off. Police were looking for Holly's quote, full-time caregiver, clueless about the young woman's level of independence. Police had already made decisions about what had gone on, telling the Bartlett family that Holly had been victim to a tragic accident, that there was no foul play suspected in her death. They felt she'd been drunk and had become disoriented and made her way to where she'd been found, dying by accident. The cab driver, a man named Paul Fraser, who'd driven Holly home that night at around midnight, told police that he'd gone around the cul-de-sac in front of Holly's building, had stopped in front of the main doors and then Holly had exited the cab. The driver claimed that Holly had gotten out of the cab from the driver's side opposite the door to her condo building. The driver claimed then that Holly had walked away from the cab and away from her apartment building. At the time, cops felt Fraser was being honest with them. Cops surmised that afterward, Holly had become disoriented and then walked down the steep driveway more than 250 feet and onto the street, Northridge. She supposedly walked north along Northridge for 150 meters or so before crossing the street and taking a path which led westward toward Africville Park along the west fence line of the compound in which Holly had been found, where there was a small hole. It had been found by a police dog. They thought that after entering through the hole, she'd have had to crawl. Holly would have had to then navigate the 45-degree ramp up to the top of the abutment where they said they thought she fell, breaking both her legs, which immobilized her. Even though she may have called for help repeatedly, the bridge traffic would have drowned out her cries.
1: Did you see the photo?
0: Yes. Yeah, Yeah, I've looked at all the photos in the landscape. I looked
1: at the photo. I wouldn't crawl through that. No. So I, I doubt she'd crawl through it unless... The only way I could think about it, Mike, would, mm-hmm. would be that somehow she might have thought she's on the wrong side of the fence, and found the hole. I have no idea. Yeah. This this one is difficult. Yeah.
0: So, what would be her motivation? Yeah. So she maybe she thinks if she crawls through this hole in the fence, she's closer to her home. Yeah. Yeah. So that that is act that actually makes sense to me. Or she's trying to get away from
1: somebody, but if she's trying to get away from somebody, you can see, right? She's not going to.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's do very... you know what I mean? Like, like mm-hmm. you
1: can. Uh, she wouldn't know where to if she. If it got to the point of running, yeah, she wouldn't know where to run. She'd be falling down instantly, right? So yeah, anyone can over could overtake her quickly. She wouldn't. It wouldn't be like. Aha, I've ran far enough away. Now I'm going to crawl through this fence. She
0: wouldn't have been able to do that, right? Because it is a landscape that she was completely unfamiliar with at this point. Like, 100% unfamiliar with. She would have had no reason to ever have gone down there in the first place. Before, even to explore. Yeah. That would not be something that she... Probably not. ...most likely would have ever, ever done. Holly's purse had been found with her, laying beside her head. It held sunglasses, Holly's gloves, her lip gloss, a bus pass, her ID card from the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, her school ID, and a Tim Hortons card. But Holly's wallet, iPhone, and chapstick were not there. They were found later in the parking lot near the entrance to the condo building. Why had she not been wearing her gloves? She'd been seen with them in the video of her earlier during the purchase at the liquor store. It was cold that night. Also, Why were her phone and wallet and chapstick discarded where they were? Oddly, police did not find Holly's cane in the initial search of the fence line. It was found by volunteer searchers led by Rendell Pittman the day after the police search. The cane was found propped upright along the south side of the fence line along a slope behind an apartment building on Kencrest Avenue. Pittman later said that, you could easily see the cane from up on top of the bank and that if, quote, police had gone around like they said they did, they would have found it. As it was winter, there were no leaves present on the bushes along the fence line. So had it been there, cops would have found it right away. Did someone drop the cane there later? And of course, why would Holly, who depended on her cane to get around, leave it at all? As well Those same searchers found a $5 bill near the area they'd discovered the cane. Was this Moira's $5 bill that Holly was seen putting into her pocket at the liquor store in the video? After the cane discovery on the southern fence line, cops changed their assessment, figuring that Holly had entered through another small hole on that side of the fence, but that area would have been even more precarious for a blind person to navigate, and that theory doesn't seem to hold water.
1: So I, I got lost for a minute downtown yesterday. Yeah. Not lost, lost. Sure. But I was in one of those underground shopping malls downtown. Sure, yeah, I know uh, the ones. To get my driver's license mm-hmm. we need. Yeah. And um, came out of a door that I didn't come. Oh, there's a door. I see some light, right? Well, And I just turned around downtown Vancouver, which is small. Yeah. But I just couldn't figure out which direction I was going in. Yeah. So it's... Anyone can get turned around. I'm not not saying she could not not have just got turned around. Sure. Yeah.
0: From a CNIB article about Holly Bartlett, quote, her loved ones say she was a capable traveler with an excellent sense of direction and very strong white cane skills. Even if she were intoxicated and disoriented, they say, Holly would not have walked aimlessly if she didn't know where she was. She would have known that doing so would get her even more lost. More likely she would have asked someone for help or stayed in the same small area until she found her bearings. Adding to the concern, many close to the case say police were unwilling to investigate the possibility of foul play. End quote. The most obvious and pressing question to everyone but the cops, it seemed, was, why on earth was Holly there under the abutment? Holly's mom said she felt that Holly wouldn't have gone to the area where she'd been found on her own. It didn't make sense to Marion or the rest of the family or Holly's friends either. They began investigations of their own, hiring a PI and creating a group to help look for answers called Justice for Holly. A member of the Justice for Holly group is Peter Parsons. Parsons met Holly in 2005 in his position as an orientation and mobility specialist. Peter, visually impaired himself, told the AMI documentary series. As an orientation and mobility specialist, I taught blind and visually impaired adults to travel safely and independently. Holly became my client when she retired her guide dog. She had the best skills of any client I had ever worked with. You'd show her something once, and then she'd have it. She was always learning new routes because she was so active, and throughout a lot of walking with orientation and mobility comes a lot of talking. Like, she was always asking me questions always asking me about my son, Jensen, telling me about her niece or nephew. So we really got to know each other quite well, end quote. You see,
1: that's interesting. So when I got lost, Mm -hmm. I was walking, I realized I was walking the wrong way because I know I had to be going uphill and I was going downhill and it just occurred to me. Right. Her senses she would have been trained to and her senses would have been honed to, to be so, more aware of those should, to know that right yeah. if she should be going up or downhill right subtle changes in so it took me like half a block i'm like yeah. wait a minute i'm going downhill i'm going down i'm going downtown but i was going to the top of berard mm-hmm. i'm like i'm going the wrong way
0: okay yeah yeah that's that's really interesting in uh how as a sighted person, you don't notice those things as quickly, maybe, yeah. as somebody who has been...
1: Because re- you're not relying on it, right? Right, The first yeah. thing
0: I was relying on was
1: trying, looking up, trying to see buildings that I recognize.
0: Yeah, like a familiar look. So landmark. that was my first
1: thing. And then, so while I was walking, looking up at buildings, it suddenly occurred to me I was going downhill and I should have been going up. Huh. Yeah.
0: For the AMI documentary, What Happened to Holly Bartlett? Peter Parsons and his dad, Brian, a former police officer and veteran investigator, walked the route that Holly supposedly walked that night, starting in the parking lot of Holly's building. Peter was continually pointing out auditory and other sensory clues, like inclines and declines, the position of traffic, that he'd educated Holly about when it came to orienting herself in a non-seeing world. Drunk or not, Peter felt, Holly would have known she was walking down the driveway away from her building. Traffic sounds on the wrong side of her would have indicated incorrect positioning and that she was headed in the wrong direction. Journalists Maggie Rarr and Peter Parsons canvassed the apartment building on Kencrest Avenue that was directly adjacent to the fenced area where Holly was discovered and the area where her cane was later found. They discovered that police had not interviewed people in the building at all after they'd discovered Holly. One resident said that he remembered Holly saying that she was friendly and he'd spoken to her numerous times. He also said that he'd only ever seen Holly stick to one route and never seemed to deviate, but it was clear she knew her way and he'd never seen Holly behind the building, nor could he recall anything unusual happening there. There had been a security camera at the building right across from the abutment, but police never asked to review the footage and it has since been tossed, as has the camera. When Holly's roommate Andrew Seely was asked about whether police had been out on the balcony of the condo, he said they hadn't. What kind of investigation had the police actually done or had they already made their decisions? In the ensuing years, there have been a lot of theories about what happened to Holly. Some have pondered whether Holly was suicidal. She was taking antidepressants and her family had been through a lot of losses recently and Holly was very upset by her dad's terminal cancer. Holly's close friend Shelley, also visually impaired, told the AMI documentary about Holly that she did not think Holly was suicidal at all. That on hearing of her friend's death, that motive never crossed her mind. Holly, she recalled, was active and looking forward to life as she was just about to graduate from her master's program. Shelley said, quote, Obviously, I don't know how she was feeling that Friday night, but I do know she had a bunch of plans and things to do the next day, and she went home at midnight she could have stayed out till two and kept drinking. Her friends didn't feel like she needed an escort, and they're the ones that know her the best when she's out in a social situation like that. End quote.
1: So one thing I've learned through horrible experiences is you never know when somebody's going to commit suicide.
0: Oh god, yeah.
1: But at the same time, Mm. it seems, where she is in her life seems highly,
0: highly unlikely that that's, Yeah, she had plans for the next day. It does not not seem like likely at all. Like, even if you are taking antidepressants, it doesn't mean you are suicidal. It just means maybe you need a little chemical help.
1: Well, and if you're taking them. Yeah,
0: yeah, right. (laughs) You know? (laughs) At the same time, um, yeah, I don't think that she did what she did to herself. I think there was something driving her out of a safer environment yeah. into something else. Yeah. But was there foul play involved? The bruises on the backs of Holly's hands, remember her palms were pristine, and her facial contusions could have meant someone had struck her. She might have raised her hands to protect herself from blows to the face. Marion said that Holly would have fought had she been attacked. There was a black Harley Davidson hat found near the location in which Holly had been laying, but that had not been collected by police it wasn't investigated. Then there was the taxi driver, Paul Fraser. Fraser had claimed that he dropped Holly off in front of her building. Video viewed later from the number seven Roby Street bus at the insistence of the family's investigators and not the police indicated that Fraser's cab had driven into the driveway and out again, heading north on Northridge, which turns into Novely Drive. Strangely, the bus's camera spotted the cab again minutes later at the corner of Kencrest and Novoley at the stop sign with its blinker on to turn right, back toward Northridge and back toward Holly's building. What was the cab still doing in the neighborhood on a busy Friday night? Fraser's story allegedly changed a number of times in subsequent interviews. And when the cab appeared on video for the second time, it was near the building behind which, just down a steep hill, Lay the fence that Holly was supposed to have climbed through and the compound where she had been found. Was Holly still in the cab at that point, or had she actually been dropped off at home at all? Had Holly fled the cab for some reason, becoming disoriented, and stumbled, frightened, down behind the building, and in fear ended up where she did? Upon learning this new information, police questioned Fraser again. He had not told police that he'd come back in that direction in his first interview. This time, Fraser allegedly said that there had been little chatter between them on the ride and that Holly appeared very drunk. According to Brian Parsons in the AMI documentary series, it was after being confronted with the bus video, Fraser admitted he'd done something that night that was on his conscience. Fraser now said that he'd seen Holly walking away from her building but then had seen Holly trip and fall on the curb, but he'd driven away at first. Fraser claimed that he thought twice and decided to turn around and come back to check on Holly. This is when he said he was spotted by the bus camera a second time. He said Holly was nowhere to be found, that she'd just vanished. This indicated to police that Holly might have become disoriented after the fall, further cementing their theory that Holly's death had been an accident. Brian Parsons interviewed Paul Fraser. According to Parsons, Fraser was evasive in his responses and admitted having lied to police. The two men had more discussion about the details of what had gone on, some of which lined up with what Fraser had already told police. From the AMI documentary, investigator Brian Parsons said Fraser claimed, He saw her get into the cab, but he focused on the fact that he had never looked at her. He said she slid right over behind him. They drove all the way home. There was no conversation whatsoever. She never spoke to him. He said she was just busy. She was rummaging in her purse the whole time. And I said, what do you suppose she was looking for? And he said, she might have been looking for her cane. And I looked at him and paused for a moment and he said, oh, oh wait, I couldn't have known that. I didn't know she was blind. Someone must have planted that in my mind. End quote. Fraser then claimed to Parsons that he had seen Holly fall and had turned around to check on her, but on his return, he claimed that she was gone. When Parsons asked him where she might have gone, Fraser surmised that maybe Holly had hidden herself, and this sent up a huge flag for Parsons, who then asked Fraser why he thought Holly might have hidden herself. Fraser said he didn't know why. Parsons asked Fraser to get into his car and show him exactly where he turned around that night. In the AMI documentary series, Parsons says, quote, We went down to where he turned around, and as I turned into the area, he said he turned. It was a roadway that led behind the apartment building. As I turned into this parking area, he said, I turned right here, and I drove down over the hill. He put both feet on the floor very hard and both hands on the dash and said, I've never been down in here. I don't know where this goes. There was serious concern in his voice at that point when he said it, end quote. Paul Fraser and Brian Parsons then exited Parsons' car and sat down on a bench. Brian Parsons' years of investigative experience served him well in the next few moments. In the AMI Doc series, Brian Parsons said that the pair of men sat there for a while. Parsons let Fraser know that he did not think that the police theory about the events that had transpired on March 27 were anywhere near what had actually gone on. Parsons told Fraser he thought the cab driver had more information than he had told police, that he knew something was bothering Paul Fraser. After a few moments, Fraser slowly, according to Parsons, opened up, telling Parsons that he, in fact, quote, ripped her off. When Parsons asked for clarification, Fraser allegedly admitted that he had stolen money from Holly that night. Of course, this is only one side of the conversation— and Paul Fraser has since denied saying those things to Parsons in that way, allegedly claiming Parsons put words into his mouth. Parsons later indicated that, in his opinion, Paul Fraser is, quote, a person of high interest.
1: Oh, uh, all of that all over the place mm-hmm. is any interview like that. Yeah. Is weird and dodgy. Right, like when when people tell different, and I'm not saying anyone did or didn't do anything. Right, yeah. But I'm saying is when it's all when stories change, mm-hmm. that's when police are going to be like, "Wait a minute, what's going on here?"
0: Yeah, and later on, uh, Fraser apparently denied having said it in that way. Okay, and claimed that Brian Parsons put those words into his mouth. Okay kind of thing like led him yeah, in that I guess direction the only people
1: who know would be the people that are there yeah that's why they should be
0: recorded yeah like cabs should be have recording equipment inside you think in London they do oh they do yeah interesting yeah well that makes sense um I don't know about some of them do I don't know how that would fly in Canada with the I, privacy I
1: think I is not I think I've been in cab, I'm trying to figure out where I was. I've been in cabs that are recording.
0: Mm-hmm. All the time. They might, I I haven't traveled in a cab for Privacy a long Privacy right? Yeah. So it's a cab driver's personal car. Yeah. He can record if he wants to. Right. And there's also the idea that um, for driver safety, maybe yeah. things are recorded as well, because there are people who rip off the drivers yeah, as absolutely. well.
1: Yeah, if I was a taxi driver, I'd probably have a, recording on. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, not to save it, but just to make sure if something goes awry, then there's some proof. Sure.
0: And, and like I say, I haven't ridden in a cab for a long time. So a cab for a long time. So I don't know if that, it might be standard practice now, maybe. In 2012, after a Halifax regional municipality meeting at which the council voted to give cab drivers a 13% pay raise, Holly's younger sister spoke up. Amanda Jenkins asked the city to amend the bylaws concerning a driver's duty to passengers with disabilities. From the Chronicle-Herald, quote, care was not taken to make sure Holly made it to her destination, Jenkins said. This should be a common courtesy, end quote. In February 2014, after repeated calls for further investigation and a heck of a lot of bad press, Halifax Regional Police and Halifax District RCMP announced an independent operational review into their investigation of the death of Holly Bartlett. The press release reads in part, quote, Due to the unique and exceptional circumstances surrounding the death of Ms. Bartlett, Halifax Regional Police and Halifax District RCMP have asked another police agency to take an impartial look at our investigation said Chief Jean-Michel Blay of Halifax Regional Police. Quote, The Service de Police de la Ville de Québec will serve as the reviewer in this matter. They were chosen due to them being the closest police service with a large major crimes unit and also due to the similarity in our two cities, size, proximity to major waterways, each with two large bridge structures. End quote. We hope that this operational review will provide Ms. Bartlett's family with some sense of closure, said Inspector Trish McCormack, acting officer in charge of Halifax District RCMP. In the event that the Service de Police de la Ville de Québec has recommendations about how we could have improved our investigation, we anticipate the review will make us better police services. This is the right thing to do, end quote. The results of the review came in, in July of 2014. It said that, quote, Ms. Holly Bartlett's death is without a doubt heartbreaking. However, based on the evidence presented to reviewers, it is accidental. No evidence presented to us can allow the reviewers to conclude that her death resulted from a criminal act, end quote. In the AMI documentary series about her sister, Amanda spoke of missing Holly. Through tears, Amanda said, quote, I was too young to realize what a good sister she was and what a good aunt she was to my kids and I just miss having her around. I miss her jokes. I miss her calling and asking me to pick her up and me getting irritated. I miss hearing her stories. I miss seeing her reach goals, and I miss it all. I just miss her. I miss, I miss my sister. End quote. Holly's mom said simply, I miss her laugh. Had Holly actually been behind that apartment building on Kencrest? It seemed more likely. Had something spooked Holly, causing her to flee, fearing for her safety? Was she left navigating around the back of an unfamiliar building where she had fallen down a steep hill, badly injuring herself? Was it then that she'd become so seriously disoriented and just had crawled to where she had been found, unable to move any further? All of her friends and family want answers, and they want the police to reopen the case. Someone knows something, but that someone hasn't come forward yet. I I think, Mike, I think somehow... Mm Hmm
1: and i'm not saying who i think somehow yeah she actually never got to that front door of her building
0: i don't think so either um
1: and something maybe she got got out earlier maybe she went somewhere i because if she wouldn't have walked in the wrong direction and i think if she was right in front of her building she wouldn't have gotten
0: lost like that right because she would know that part so well i don't think she ever got there the best theory I've heard is the one that Brian Parsons and the documentary presents, which is the one that I've presented here. Yeah. So that is the best theory that I've heard about what happened. And um, the family seemed to feel a little more comfortable with that explanation. Obviously, it, it isn't, this is exactly what happened. Because if Paul Fraser knows what happened, yeah, he could put the family's minds at rest by saying... I know what happened, and here's how it actually went down. Right, you know, but I I don't know if he does. Maybe he doesn't. Right? Maybe he doesn't know exactly what happened. Uh, but
1: and we don't know. Yeah, you know, we don't know. We, you know, we're not investigative journalists here.
0: It's it's you know, we don't know. So he's never been charged with anything. So, and he's never been convicted of anything. If somebody know. knows something, though, I really hope they come out of the woodwork and say, yeah. And that's it for Dark Poutine, episode 217, The Mysterious Death of Hall. A $6
2: billion con.
0: It didn't take long for it to spread like wildfire. You got to take a look at this really crazy gold stock. A buddy of mine got in at a dime.
2: Which destroyed lives and devastated communities.
0: Every little town
2: across the nation, people have shares in this. We lost everything. And to date... No one has been brought to justice.
1: Somebody knows more than we know.
2: The $6 billion gold scam from the BBC World Service and CBC. Search for the $6 billion gold scam wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The island of Newfoundland keeps its secrets close, shrouds them in mystery. But once in a while, the fog is lifted, the truth comes out.
2: I get a feeling there's something going on here. My whole body was shaking. You go to bed believing that you're a certain person one night and then all of a sudden the next day everything that you've known is not true. This is not the life that I should have lived.
0: I'm Luke Quinton from CBC. This is Come By Chance. Available now. Play Bartlett. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. And here is our first voicemail of the day.
2: Hi, Mike and Matthew. My name is Tara, and I'm calling you from Canada's prettiest town, or so they say, Goderich. It's close to... Massey's old stomping grounds. Anyway, I am currently standing on the site of the last public hanging in Canada on December seventh, eighteen sixty nine, and it was Nicholas Milady, and it was for killing his stepfather. Or sorry, his father and his stepmom. Uh, anyway, I'm just calling to say thank you for what you guys do. It's great hearing your stories of those who cannot tell the tell their stories themselves, and. A couple of weeks ago, you were saying that you didn't want to do ones that everybody else has done to death. However, I believe that you, and you, Mike and Matthew, you both bring something different to the story, and sometimes you can even learn more when you guys do it or when somebody else. Yeah. There's other information that we just haven't heard before. Anyway, thanks again, and go shit in your hats. And to fellow Yumber, Yumber, <laughs> Yumber Yarder, Joe Poutine, even though she's a Dirty Sen- Sens fan, I still love her. All right, thank you, and go shit in your hat.
0: Oh boy, a Dirty Sens fan! <laughs> Those Ottawa Senators. Uh... Oh, is this ice hockey? Yes, it's ice hockey. Matthew, um, God, I, I can
1: I can Godrich is actually I don't I didn't know it was deemed the loveliest town in Canada, but it? it's actually a very lovely little. Oh, place. I yeah.
0: want to travel there. It's I on the water. There. It's beautiful. It's and, on Lake Huron. And it's cool that uh, she was calling from the last yeah. site of the last public hanging in Canada. That's, that's fascinating. I haven't covered that story yet, but it's on the list to do. Uh, yeah. Really cool. Thank you for the call. Next up. Let's have another voicemail.
2: Hi, Mike and Matthew. It's Stephanie Collins from Calgary, a uh, longtime listener. Uh, also supportive on Patreon love the podcast i was so sad back in pre-pandemic times when mike came through calgary and i wasn't able to go to the meetup because i had family members in town and couldn't explain that i had to go meet a podcast host instead of seeing family <laughs> as well i can be a bit pedantic, and uh when mike started using the shit in your hat phrase i was like i've never heard that before had to go look it up, and sure enough, it's a common thing. So, love you all. Say hi to Steve, uh, and go shit in your hat. Bye
1: bye. Wow, well, we're your podcast family now. So next time he's in town, just skip the skip the skip the blood relatives. <laughs> yeah, I think
0: I think at some point Matthew and I will come and do some uh, some visiting. We have to around. Yeah,
1: I just wish we had the
0: freedom to do it anytime we wanted. Well, here's the thing. If I win the lottery, the show continues. Dun, 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 dun. The the probably the production quality will go up. I'll hire a writer, <laughs> and uh, and then we'll travel around all the time. That would be so fun. That'd be cool. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. You could hire me as your writer. I could. There you go. Yeah, there you go. And then you could quit that other stinky job that you yeah, have, Matthew. <laughs> it's not a stinky. One. I know it's not always. Sometimes it's edible. Sometimes it's drinks. It's <laughs> Sometimes. Not always smoke. Sometimes it's skunky, right? Mm Mm-hmm. All right. uh, Let's listen to our next voicemail.
2: Hi, Mike. Uh, It's Denise in Dartmouth calling. I wanted to tell you a little story about the Mary Celeste. I grew up, since I was three years old, with a descendant of the Dewis family. Uh, They continue to be seafaring and have a painting of the Mary Celeste in their living room. Uh, I remember the patriarch of the family fervently explaining to me as a child why they could never rename a boat due to the bad luck it would incur. Just thought that was an interesting tidbit for you. You fellas go take a shit in your hat.
0: There you go. So that confirms my uh, thought that a lot of people felt that the renaming of Mary Celeste from her original name was the problem. Yeah. Cause problems. You don't want to upset Neptune or whoever it is that keeps track of said things.
1: I think it was Neptune. Yeah.
0: And uh, thank you for calling from Dartmouth. My dad grew up in Dartmouth on Portland Street. Portland Street in Dartmouth. I love Dartmouth. It's a nice place. And my my aunt still lives in the house that my dad grew up in. So, yeah, it's still there. The family home is still the family home after 80 years.
1: (laughs) It's kind of cool. Why is it called Dartmouth? Don't you, know. On the way here, I was thinking about New Zealand, mm-hmm. and I was like, "What's it called?" I'm like, "Was well, it because it, everyone has a New Zeal when they go there, or is is there a Zealand?" No, they have a New Zeal because you know, it's like sunny, so I have a New Zeal. And Dartmouth did get somebody get like a dart thrown and it hit them in the mouth, so they named the town Dartmouth.
0: I have no idea. Okay,
1: no idea. Probably neither of these things that I'm saying. Place naming
0: is weird. So are you? <laughs> I am. <laughs> Let's listen to our last voicemail.
2: Hi, this is Mint. I live in on Parable, as you would put it. And I just wanted to stop by and say that I really appreciate what you've been doing lately, especially with a lot of the historical podcasts or contacting different sections that respect the victims a lot more. And I just wanted to say that I really appreciate everything you guys have been doing. And it's been really nice to see just some regular Canadians covering the historical side of stuff, and especially from the victim's point of view. Um, I really appreciate that. So go take a poop in your hats and have a good night.
0: Well, uh, Thank th- you. Thank you so much. And the first part of her voicemail was a little garbled there. I, I have there's, trouble hearing. There's somebody in the background. Well, it sounded like, I don't know, maybe she's at an airport or in, I a, think... in a bus terminal. I think she is
1: a traffic controller.
0: Oh, air traffic controller. Yeah, and she was taking her eye off the ball there. Taking her eye off the ball. It's like, (laughs) oh, yeah, I got to call Dark Poutine. There's 3,000 planes in the air. I'm just going to call Dark Poutine and have a conversation with them. And it's like, meow. (laughs) (laughs) Just near misses everywhere. Oh, boy. All these pilots that need counseling. (laughs) Thank you for your voicemails. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at 877 327 5786 or 1877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All right, it's on to Patreon and Donut Money Donors. First up, look at that, we have uh, somebody who's called in uh, already, Great Big Pete. Great Big Pete. So what do you, when somebody says Great Big Peter, what do you think of, Matthew? That he's super tall. Oh, is that what you think of? Yeah, like a lumberjack sort of guy. I think of something else. Oh, uh, because you're a perv. I am a pervert. Anyway, uh, Great Big Pete is from Ottawa, Ontario, our nation's capital, Thank you so much, Great Big Pete. And you say Great Pete, Great Big Pete. Do you think he's a lumberjack? No,
1: I think he's the Minister of Administrative Affairs. What the heck is the Minister of Administrative Affairs? Uh, have you ever watched Yes Minister?
0: Uh, no, I a actually have British haven't. comedy? No, I haven't seen the that whole, show. The
1: whole point is it's a minister that does nothing. Uh, so, the Minister of Administrative Affairs. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm, I would like to have that job. <laughs> Oh look, I'm getting paid to do nothing. <laughs> but I, I don't want to rip off the taxpayer though. That's the problem. Because if you're serving don't the get taxpayers. Me I know I, Taxation I was is theft. I was poking the bear a little bit there, Matthew. <laughs> yeah. Uh next up we have Kimberly Hansen and Kimberly is from Staten Island, New York. I really, 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 really want to go to New York City. I want to go to places like Staten Island. I want want to take the ferry that I've seen in so many movies. And people are probably like, people from New York are like, you've been to Vancouver, you've taken the sea bus, it's the same thing. But no, it's not. It's New York and I get to see the Statue of Liberty and all that kind of stuff. What does Kimberly do there in Staten Island?
1: I think there is like this weird place called the, the Lenap burial ground.
0: What is that?
1: Largest pre-European burial ground
0: in New York. Weird. So I think she's an archeologist. Oh, oh, that's kind of a cool job. I I worked with an archeologist at one point who, uh, had dug up Viking graves, which is interesting. He, that was part of his thing, but Mm. his, uh, PhD dissertation was in Genghis Khan. I've talked about him before, Stuart Cooper, and he used to bang on about... stu He used to bang on about uh, Genghis Khan all the time to me, and I learned some really... What's
1: your nickname for Stuart? Stuart Cooper, in he inevitably has a nickname. Stu. Stuku?
0: I don't oh, know. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Sorry. I haven't seen him in like 30 years. So. Oh, wow. But uh that is it for a Patreon, patrons. So let's move on to donut money donors. All right, our first donut money donor is Emily Matisse Designs. Ooh. Ooh, and she's from Ottawa as well. Look wow. at that. A couple of Ottawa folks. She says, Hi, hi, Mike. Hey, Mike and Matthew. I had a donut for the first time in months this morning. I thought you might like one oh. too. Thanks for the great podcast. I seriously love it. Donut emoji. Well, thank you, Elizabeth Matisse. Thank you, Elizabeth. uh, So she designs things. I wonder what it is that she designs, Matthew.
1: I think she designs uh, big and tall clothes for Big Big Pete, Great Big Pete. Great Big Pete? Yep. So they both live in Ottawa. Yeah. So I've heard Ottawa's filled with like very tall people. Okay. So she designs clothes specifically for tallies.
0: Yeah, and Pete is one of her clients. Yeah. Well, that's nice. Yeah, they
1: called each other and decided to, like, both write in.
0: Well, say hi to Pete the next time you see him, Emily. <laughs> next we have Sarah Baker. And I don't know where Sarah's from, but she says, can't wait to hear where I'm from and what I do there. No pressure, Matthew. <laughs> Smiley face. She's from Intercourse, uh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Intercourse, Pennsylvania
1: in Lancaster I'm, County. I think we're all from Intercourse.
0: Yeah, and I'm not going to ask you what she does in Intercourse <laughs> because that is that is really crass and rude. <laughs> um what does what does Sarah do for a living, Matthew? I think she works in tobacco fields. She works in tobacco fields. We've had tobacco field workers before. Have we? I'm sorry. No, it, you... That's you... because I did that when I was a kid. Right. But it's interesting. You no, I'm, just, I'm, looking,
1: I'm looking at a picture of intercourse <laughs> and I see tobacco leaves.
0: I look at pictures of intercourse. <laughs> no, on the... I
1: didn't mean it. Th- I totally didn't mean it that way. I'm on my computer looking at
0: pictures of intercourse. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean intercourse, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania.
0: I never have heard it said that. Way before. Usually it's I'm looking at porn. Actually but I'm looking at pictures actually, of intercourse. I
1: think there's Mennonite community there
0: and I, I think she uh
1: she does
0: um buggy detailing. Okay. And Mennonites don't look at pictures of intercourse. I'm no, sure. and she puts like little flames on the sides of the buggies. Oh wow. there you go. Yeah. That's fun. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And don't forget, next week... We'll be in CrimeCon, so don't panic when you don't hear an episode of Dark Poutine next Monday.
1: If you don't hear one in two Mondays, then you can panic. Then you we, can panic. Because and... we were lost somewhere in the Nevada yeah, desert.
0: Somebody, we maybe we weren't allowed back into the country. I, to- or... I
1: totally picture, what they, what's that book called? Something, something, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. It's going to be us. hmm But sober.
0: But sober. <laughs> Yeah, fearing fear and loathing sober wouldn't be exactly... So,
1: so, lack of fear and fun in Las Vegas. Yeah, exactly.
0: It's like, oh, look, here's Mike and Matthew just kind of sitting on a bench eating ice cream or something. Watching the world goodbye. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, uh, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Apple. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. bye, bye.
1: On Showcase.
0: You were in a concentration camp in World War II.
1: I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone.
2: We must keep living.
1: Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new. Sundays. On Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.